Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection of humans and technology. My name is Guthrie, and I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hello. And this week, we have a very special guest. Belay Whitby is here all the way from uh, the UK. Hello, Belay. Hello. He uh, is a philosopher, uh, specifically being concerned with the, I guess, I don't know, ethics of technology. I think that's fair to say. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we're really excited to have him on and talk about what um, we were talking right before, uh, right before we went uh, on air. And uh, he was just saying how he thought that basically he was going to be the only person in the world uh, who would care about this. And all of a sudden now it does appear to be all the rage, uh, especially with AI and you know, worries about technology. So um, how, how did you manage to end up in this field at all? Oh, well, it's simple, really. Um, I think uh, when I was a teenager, I was interested in philosophy and uh, assembling engines. And uh, at university, I studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, uh, sort of standard uh, degree uh, for this country. Um, and I learned to fly in the Oxford University Air Squadron, and I continued rebuilding lots of engines uh, for my university friends. Uh, so uh, it's a, simply a question of finding a job that could combine an interest with technology and philosophy, particularly moral philosophy. I, I more or less made up the subject on my own, I think. Uh, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting that there's a lot of interest in AI and ethics now because uh, I find myself at conferences sometimes yawning and sometimes saying, well, actually, I published a code of conduct for artificial intelligence and a whole book on the subject back in 1988. <laughs> I, I don't know whether that's a clever thing to say or that just makes people think I'm old and past it, but, uh, <laughs> but it, are we still connected? Of course. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's a, a Skype noise. Yeah, so I've kind of been in the field from the beginning. Uh, and as I was saying, I thought it would be pretty lonely at first. But it turned out that a technology ethicist was very useful uh, in terms of uh, teaching, or sorry, attempting to teach ethics to computer science undergraduates. And I, I have a lifetime of doing that. Uh, as well. So for those of um, for our listeners who maybe don't are not familiar with the field, what would you say like what what is computer ethics or te the ethics of technology? What 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 what's a nice little summary of I, of what that is? I wish I could give an easy summary. Mm. But uh, first of all, there's a whole new range of problems that uh, technology has introduced. There's a whole class of crimes now that you can't commit without a computer, particularly virtual offenses. Uh, some of them are parallel to old crimes. So if you if you hack into uh, a, a politician's emails, for example, that's parallel. You, that's a crime that could be committed in the days of paper. You'd have to open envelopes and so on. Um, but some of them uh, particularly virtual offences, and I, I'm just writing a paper on, on virtual rape and so on, 
some of these virtual offences really are new offences. Uh, I guess the theme I've taken through the decades has been that people actually working with the technology, by which I mean programmers, their managers, uh, the managers of tech companies and so on, need to take responsibility. They, they need to work out the ethics. So that's kind of a parallel to what happens in medicine, for example, where no one doubts that there's medical ethics, but generally speaking, it's driven by medics and uh, they, they set standards for their profession. Uh, it's true that there are ethics committees with lay members, and I've, I've served on many ethics committees, and indeed set up ethics committees for tech companies, uh, and lay members are very important. But I, I would like to see the IT profession see itself as a profession and drag up its own standards a great deal. So, oh, um, so I'm, uh, I'm a attorney over here in the States. And there's, of course, lots of ethics when it comes to lawyers, and we have to take tests. And the, the, state, the state of Illinois has said that I'm an ethical person. But the, all the laws are made, you know, it feel, it would, you would assume that, all, that the ethics rules would be made by some sort of government entity. But all the government, all the rules are just made up by the legal community. They just decide what's ethical for lawyers, and then usually the Supreme Court of each state, not, not, the, not the United States Supreme Court, but just the Supreme Court of each individual state, determines, oh, okay, we will accept these rules. Um, but yeah, they basically self-govern themselves. Um, so, it, 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 but, but I guess in the tech community, there's no sort of formal governing body, really. There have been attempts, and in, staying in the States, the ACM publishes a wonderful code of conduct for, um, for programmers, system designers, and so on. The, the, the problem is that um, there's no requirement to be professionally qualified in the field. Right. Uh, there's a, there's a, a tradition in computing of, well, I call them gifted amateurs, but sometimes my computer scientist colleagues look at me and say I've been too generous in calling them gifted. But it, the, the field is immature in some ways, um, and a, a lot of people still see them as, see there, or a lot of people in IT still see themselves as rebels, as breaking down rules, as, as doing things differently. Um, and uh, I think sort of after 50 or 60 years, the profession needs to. Um, so can you give an example, Blay, of something that you feel um, is either being ignored or, or actually, uh, you know, actions are being taken that are not ethical um, that would be addressed if if the people, you know, if uh, IT professionals had a code of ethics, knew what it was, used it, like what would be different? Can you give an example well, I, of that? Yeah, I can give you an example. It's good to have a lawyer in on this conversation. Um, <laughs> but, uh, because lawyers have a role to play. Um, from the aviation side, I, I, I want to hold them at a distance uh, in, some, in some areas. But they, they clearly have a role to play in this. Um, IBM's Watson, 
that won Jeopardy. Uh, right. It's a, it's a great technical achievement. But of course, IBM didn't do it just to prove a point. They commercializing it as Dr. Watson. And the, the pro I have a number of problems there. And one of the problems I have is this vision of a doctor who's trained for a long time, for at least eight years, to get her qualifications. She knows all about ethics. She's taking responsibility for the patient in front of her. And she knows that if she doesn't, consequences will follow. If, uh, if, she, if she makes a mistake, she'll have to pay for it. Um, but then she's taking advice from a, a handheld, you know, uh, a, a, a tablet of some sort in front of her, uh, with Dr. Watson on it, taking advice from a program written by gifted amateurs. And if there's something wrong with that, they will face no consequences. It's very rare that uh, programmers are prosecuted for uh, inadequate work. Sure. Um, it, 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 there isn't there even a legal framework for saying what inadequate work would be. Um, and, and, of course... The more we go down this route, the more danger there is. But what I say to my medical students is, think about this for a minute. If there's a mistake, if there's an extra zero on a dose that the, the AI device is recommending, the only person who can spot that is a trained medical professional who's actually alert and saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. The minute management say, well, we can now de-skill this operation, we can give it to somebody with a, a lower level of training. The mistakes won't be spotted. But, it, but to me, it's the contrast between the people writing this code who are just basically, uh, you know, working in the Wild West of the IT world and, and then putting it into the hands of a trained medical professional who has uh, all sorts of professional responsibility and ethical responsibility. And, of course, she will face the law if she gives a wrong dose. I mean, am I portraying my, my worry about this. I mean, I like the IT profession to, maybe they, they can't be exactly like the medical profession, but they could certainly move up the ethical ladder a bit now. So in the United States, um, I think the biggest current um, place this will shake out is with driverless cars because you have, um, you're, you're in an automobile that's being driven autonomously by software that was developed by a large company. And if there is a, an accident, you know, um, someone has to be at fault and someone has to pay for the accident, right? Now, now of course, usually that'll be covered by the insurance companies. I don't know exactly how your auto insurance works um, over in the UK. But, uh, you know, right, so, so the, the, the police department will determine who was at fault in the accident and then they or or their their insurance company will have to have to, has to pay uh, the cost. But when what so so who is at fault when a car being driven autonomously hits another car? Is it the person who was driving the car? Is it the company who developed the AI? Is it the car manufacturer? Um, there currently are basically no rules, and so I think politicians are scrambling to codify something quickly um, before this, you know, because right now it's kind of the wild, wild west. As it, it, is in, it is indeed the wild west. I have a paper on this ready to go, and I take a, a, 
a rather different attitude. I think driverless cars are a good idea as an ethicist. Um, there are jobs that I don't think we should give to robots. Uh, and Intimate Companion is one of them. You know, it's a, one of my most popular papers is Do You Want a Robot Lover? And it, that's an area I've got a lot of reservations about. But driving cars is something that uh, humans really are very bad at. They're killing an awful lot of people. And driverless cars would reduce that death. Um, and I, I've talked to a number of companies about this. I must be careful what I say because I've signed a lot of non-disclosure. Sure. But I get the general impression that manufacturers, and particularly at least one large U.S. AI company, are ready to go with this. Uh, they think the technology is good enough to sell, uh, and they want the legal and ethical details cleared up. And what I what I suggest in the paper is to look at the aviation world. Uh, there will be accidents with driverless cars. There's no doubt about it. They should be investigated by an independent authority who seek to find the cause and make recommendations, not to attribute blame. Now, you know, I've already said it's good to have a lawyer here. I, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give driverless cars exemption from the law or from blame because clearly... Uh, a, a manufacturer can produce a defective product and should face legal consequences. Programmers can do a bad job and should face legal consequences. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want the law pushed out of the area altogether, but I would like to see uh, a no-fault pattern of investigation to work out what went wrong. Mm. Of course, the price of this and, and what's got me shown the door in a, from a number of large companies is that there, we can't have commercial secrecy. If there is an accident, then the investigators must have the technical competence and the legal authority to look at every detail of that right. driver's car, all right. the, um, including how the program performed in the particular circumstance that led to the accident, and then make a recommendation that would stop a similar accident happening again and I have to say um, that I'm not generally impressed with the ethics of the IT world, and they do seem to put commercial secrecy of their software ahead of ethics in this case. So, I am not surprised at all. That... <laughs> but but you are know... you saying, Blay, that, that the, um, the uh, aviation uh, industry, you know, the whole... Um, investigating of airplane accidents uh, is would be a good model to follow. That that's different. That it doesn't put the secrecy of um, you know corporate secrets uh, above the you know safety investigation um, protocols. That's exactly what I'm saying, Susan. It's a very good model, um, and. I mean, it's not perfect, and it does produce some tensions. Uh, I'm, I'm actually experiencing one. I, uh, I first remove here. There's, there was a terrible crash at an air show just over a year ago, right here in Brighton. I was a close-up witness. Um, a, a vintage jet hit a roadway and killed 11 innocent people. And there's a long and detailed investigation. 
and a certain amount of tension because the local police want to prosecute the pilot who rather miraculously survived. Um, and, and I have to say, that would, that would seem fair because I watched it and it wasn't a particularly good piece of flying. Um, but the Air Accident Investigation Branch of the Civil Aviation Authority, and it's, it's very similar in the United States, the, the, uh, the um, administration of these, of these investigations, completely independent body, won't hand over its uh, investigation to the police. Um, refuses to do this. And, I mean, this is a very this is an important thing to stress. They really do investigate on a no-blame basis. And one of the reasons I'm stressing this is because a very unethical film called Sully has just been released, which does the absolute wicked thing of suggesting the investigators are trying to attribute blame. And that's not how aviation investigation works. I mean, these people are typically ex-pilots who say... We just want to know what happened. Um, we won't talk to the police. Whatever you say is in confidence. Um, and that's how the investigation works. So hmm. I, I would... And I know, yeah, and I know, but you've got a, a fair amount of experience with the whole aviation, I believe, because when I, I mean, the when I, uh, the reason I know who you are is from the, a talk, um, we were both giving talks at a conference in the UK, and the talk you gave was on human factors in, in aviation accidents, which, by the way, was just a fantastic talk, uh, really enjoyed it. So, um, I, uh, I mean, we're talking, we've talked so far, uh, here about technology, but I just wanted to mention you—you've got a, a pretty strong background in in that whole, you know, aviation world uh, as well. Yeah, one of the courses I'm teaching currently is the aviation model in medicine to uh, to medical students, uh, and and it's kind of again when I started that that was new but now a lot of people have published and there's a, a lot again of ex-pilots training doctors in techniques that have worked to reduce aviation mm. accidents and uh, sharing what they've got which will help to reduce medical accidents so um, I, I, mean, I wouldn't praise the aviation model if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually worked it's actually made aviation pretty safe cool. at least if if we talk about scheduled airline flights, it's achieved a tremendous degree of safety. And I kind of think road users deserve that degree of safety as well. Uh, and driverless cars are a technology that can offer it. Can I um, ask you a question? Sure. So um, the way things are shaping up the United States, if local governments do not move, do not take action, is that if there's an accident between a driverless car and another person or and anything, right, the, uh, the, the entity that will have to pay to fix all the things is the, uh, the, is the driver. So the, the driver of the driverless car. Correct. Right. So <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, you, you laugh, but the way no, it no, works is is the way the laws are no but there is a driver the the way the laws are structured is that if you are on the roadway with a car you own you are responsible for the safety of that automobile and 
that's 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 exactly the problem. The laws were not written to have the idea of a driverless car. And there are a lot of different, um, you know, it's not when we say driverless, we're thinking completely autonomous. But even right now, we're driving somewhat autonomous cars that break automatically, that have detection and side, you know, if there's a car on the side. And so, but, and and in fact, in um, many of the laws, so for example, I believe in California, the law is even, so Google is driving around with autonomous vehicles in California, but the way the law works, all autonomous vehicles must have a steering wheel, must have brakes and gas, must have a manual override. So if anything happens, that the and there must be someone sitting in the driver's seat. And because of all these things, right, it is, even though the car is being driven, you know, driverlessly, according to the law, it's the person driving, quote unquote, who is responsible. So if there is an accident, the person who has to fo fork over the $40,000 to fix their car plus the other car, or maybe even more if there's any kind of medical damages. Um, again, the way it works in the States is if it's if I hit someone with my car, I am liable for my car and their car and all of their medical bills. Um, so so in, in the aviation industry, if there's an accident, who pays the cost? Well, it's the big, you know, the, the company that owned the aircraft. Um, because the driver is an employee, he's not doing it personally, right? So, so the, you know, so ev so everything can be done by this big company, but as it currently stands in the United States, all the costs have to be incurred by the individual, and so if we go the uh, aviation model, which I think is a great idea, um, the governments would have to pass some sort of law, but then you'd basically be asking the automotive industry to pay for all the accidents in the United States, a cost which they are currently not doing. And I imagine they would fight that tooth and nail. Yeah, I, I think the insurance companies are an important player in this too. Mm. Uh, you see, airlines are insured, heavily insured, uh, and I think the, the, the sellers, designers, and producers of autonomous vehicles would need to be insured. And because there will be claims, it, it's a shame that we can't build the legal and insurance structure to use this technology quite as quickly as we can use the technology. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not totally pessimistic about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I have to say to you, Guthrie, U.S. lawyers aren't all totally conservative, and some of these cases will come to court, and some of these issues can be resolved in court. Uh, things need to change, but the law can change, and clearly That's needs true. to change on this. Although, you know, my original point that the IT industry needs to be much more like the medical profession and to take responsibility for its creations that still stands I think mm. because uh, you know, if, if if you were involved in a case following a, a, an automobile accident that involved a driverless car I mean you would be quite interested in the standards of programming that were employed and how rigorously it was tested especially but, if the fault is of the driver, you know, right? Like in, in the one time out of a billion, which is way better than whatever 
humans can do. But in that one time out of a billion when something does go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, the court should have the right to look and say, how well did you test this code? Did you perform to the normal, you know, to the recognized standards of the industry? I mean, this is happening. It's not... Uh, it's not unknown. I have friends who are called as professional witnesses. Again, as as academic computer scientists, and it, invariably, what they're asked in court was, was this work to the usual standards of the industry? Uh, and I suppose they rightly say, well, the usual standards of the industry aren't frankly that good. <laughs> but um, but it, I mean, it is possible to write reliable code. It it is possible to test your code properly. I I just. I mean, again, I've signed way too many agreements to, to give examples, but sure. I, I feel a lot of companies release release code, release software, because it, and they think consumers want it, it's whizzy and effective, and they don't care too much that it's not reliable. So uh, what would... Get, oh, I go ahead. We as consumers have got this attitude that we don't care too much that it's not reliable. Yeah. No networks go down and so on. Which is okay for a word processor. It's possibly okay for email, but it's not okay for a life support system, and it's not okay for a driverless car. It's not okay for software that's controlling a, a, an electricity distribution network or, and things like that. Um, the industry needs to recognise that that higher professional standards are required, and and that it should enforce them. Well, I love your your comment from earlier Blay, about you know this idea that um, technology and code and software you know it's all uh, it's innovative it's you know there's uh, the the rebel aspect and I and I you know I don't even know it's uh, it's interesting I haven't stopped to think about whether the people that do the work you know who if you talk about the the tech industry that's such a, a huge cross-section of people these days right because you've got you know the people who are actually writing the code and then you've got people who are managing the project and then you've got the large corporation you know whose whose project it is and so i don't know if we can lump all those people together but but there was you know this history right of of it being new and innovative and rule breaking and um, I, I mean I I haven't worked on a, a a tech standards project real recently but I used to do you know a lot of those not necessarily coding standards but you know the interface design standards and you know just all that the chafing at at the idea that there would be standards right or there would be a standard process by which things would be done and i know that 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 um in the oh wow i think maybe the early 2000s there was some improvement on that here in the states because the fda the food and drug administration said that if you were creating a medical device or software for a medical device, you had to prove that you had gone through, um, for instance, a user-centered design process. You, you had to you know, prove that, that you had followed best practice for, for design. And that was you know, 
quite new and innovative when that when that came out. I don't think that has spread to uh, many more industries over here where it's required, right? I mean, I think there's obviously a, a lot of people and a lot of companies that think that having standard processes and um, you know technical standards are a good idea, but I don't know, you know how how. Uh, how much that's really done or enforced, and you're right, right? This is we've been we've been creating tech stuff for a long time. <laughs> well, I don't think we can use the excuse anymore that it's so new. You know, it's not possible to have to have standards. And I'm sure you know in the aviation industry, although some things stay the same, they've got new equipment and new software, and you know they they are still somehow able to to uh, come to some standards. Um, and so I'd like to get your comment on that. But before I do that, I also have a question for you, which is, you know, I, I teach a course every semester at University of Wisconsin in, um, in what's uh, uh, essentially a human technology interaction uh, program within the computer science department. And I don't know, I actually, you have me thinking about whether in the computer science department where I'm teaching, there is even a course on ethics or, you know, anything like this. I'll have, I'm going to have to look up and, and see if there is. If there is, I'm not familiar with it. There might be because I'm only an adjunct, so I'm not necessarily in on everything. But um, you know, do you in the UK is this taught regularly? Regularly, if you if one is getting an undergraduate tech degree, uh, the way it works at universities, well, works maybe a generous word here, but the way it's supposed to work is the the BCS, which used to be the British Computer Society, it's now just BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT will recognize certain degrees as a professional qualification and they send a team to the university to see what the students are being taught and whether or not they'll, uh, uh, they'll acknowledge this degree as, as meeting their requirements and they will insist, they, they'll insist on human computer interface and on your area uh, whether the university or the students like it or not, they say that that's something you've got to know. And they'll also insist on ethics uh, and the students at least familiar with IT law. Because frankly, you work in the IT industry now, it's not the Wild West. There are, there are laws and it's very easy to break them. Um, one of the reasons it's easy to break them is I think they're, they're not very well founded laws. Uh, but there's all—I mean, there's also areas of dispute. Um, at, at one university where I teach an ethics course, Imperial College in London, I, I get the students to form uh, in their seminar groups, give presentations on recent issues, and of course, uh, Apple versus FBI uh, on this, whether or not they right. uh, um, um, help the FBI to hack into an iPhone just one time. Uh, proved a very popular topic with an awful lot of students, in fact, siding with Apple on this, which, which is tough on the FBI, who, who do right. think have a duty to see the contact list on, a, on the phone of a, an, a known terrorist. 
Um, there were very much two sides to that story. But I mean, the idea that you could do, you could work in the IT industry and not have some awareness of ethics is, is kind of blown out of the water, isn't it, by Apple versus FBI. Um, you need to take a view as a, a professional. And, and, and I'm not really pushing people to take a view either side on that. I'm just saying there's a current issue in IT ethics. Uh, do you want me to try and remember your question about <laughs> about aviation? No, that's uh, that's all right. Talk about all right. So, so you met you you kind of mentioned about um, uh, AI and uh, robotics and social interactions um, and and ethics issues around that and. Uh, Guthrie and I, uh, we have a talk that, that we give, um, which is called the future of human, uh, technology interaction. And, and we, um, I don't, Guthrie, I don't know that we raise the, the ethics of it. Perhaps we should, we certainly raise the, I don't know, philosophical, uh, human, uh, issues, questions, you know, of, of wait, wait a minute, what, what do we want here? <laughs> what, what do we want to have happen? But I'd love to have your ideas on uh, the, the ethics issues or any other issues you, uh, about AI and about um, uh, social interactions with robots. Yeah, well, let me give you one idea about that. I, I have to say that that in all my talks and, and really what I write is I, I I say look I'm not doing science fiction I'm only talking about technologies that are either working in the lab right. yeah. or it's reasonable to assume that they'll be around uh, in a couple of years right. and on this uh, on on your talk on social interactions with robots um, one thing that that I got quite exercised about uh, is um, <laughs> smart homes, smart homes for the elderly. Uh, and, and let me just give you the idea about this. Uh, if I look at the ACM code of conduct or the BCS code of conduct or most of the stuff written on computer ethics, really, um, and, and I have to take some blame for this, the normal assumption is that users are businessmen or women. That's, you know, what what does a user look like? Well, they're, you know, they're, they're a sale, they're Susie the saleswoman or something like this. Uh, and of course, we're now introducing this technology with a very, very, very different classes of users. So in the case of smart homes, we're talking about elderly people with declining cognitive capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we're also with robot nannies, we're looking at children. And the idea that, well, the, you know, we interact with the user and they have certain things and we do this user-centered design. Well, now we're moving into an area where we've got vulnerable users, very vulnerable users, and maybe we have an ethical duty to protect them. Or maybe we have an ethical duty you know, to insert a human into this rather than uh, expect them to deal with a, a rather strange and alien technology. It, it, it certainly... It's a field I'd like to see discussed. And aside from documents where I've been in the room, I don't see the expression vulnerable users used a lot. But, but clearly, uh, a, an infant 
and you know, a, a very small child, a toddler in the care of a robot. And I, I, I did defer to Guthrie here. Uh, it, it is illegal under European law to leave your child in the care of a robot. Um, and I assume it would be in the United States. Define, too. ooh. But, but I know that people will do it. Or I, 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 it's not pessimistic to think that people will do this. I, so in the United States, that kind of family law would be determined on a state-by-state basis. And we would have uh, like child neglect. Um, I know you can be charged, for instance, if you leave your child unattended in a hot car. If you left your child with a robot, I don't think in a lot of states it would be a crime, depending on the length and depending on how well the robot was being taken care of. Uh, Susan, you might know more than I. Oh, well, I, I, you know, I'm not the lawyer, so... Uh, I, I, I do not specialize in family law. So I I'm, would assume, I'm assuming, this is a total assumption, not based on any fact, that um, uh, if you leave your child with a robot, you've left your child without supervision. Because oh, really? I, yeah, I would think, I would think supervision in most definitions is being supervised by depends on the a robot, competent adult human but I, I that's a great that's a great question. I don't think there's anything it I, I think in the answer. United States it is a subjective what is competent you know right like is the robot competent enough to provide care blah 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 I and, wow we're gonna but I but I don't but there's certainly that. not anything especially uh federal on a federal level as far as I know that says you can't that says you can't do that yes. yeah but I I just can't imagine that that a robot would be considered a comp but that that's I'm now now you got me curious I'm gonna have to find out if this is is happening anywhere but yeah blay really really interesting question about that so that's one um uh, uh continue on with uh, the idea of you know ethical issues of so like what about with with uh the elderly or someone who uh you know has dementia and that kind of thing uh, well all I can say is I'm surprised everybody isn't discussing this because the technology is there. We can we can do some pretty clever things now with smart homes. It, it's a well, I, I guess it's being built. I, I've spoken to companies in the area, and again, rather like the driverless vehicle manufacturers, they say oh, we need some guidance. We, you know, we need we need a legal framework for this. Uh, again, it. It's a technology that, that brings certain advantages. If you conduct a survey and say to people, would you like us to develop AI technology that will enable you to remain independent and in your own home for longer, they tend to say yes. Uh, if you ask the question, would you like to be cared for by a robot in your old age, they tend to say no. Uh, and there's, there's crucial things we don't know. Um, and I think even Susan doesn't know about this interface. We need more research. We don't really know uh, the psychological effects of having children brought up by robots. So we've got this technology. It will be interesting. People are building robot nannies right now. You can get them if you want. Uh, we're hazy on the legal position. 
Um, we're certainly hazy on the ethical position. I think we're hazy on the psychological position too. I, I don't know that it's a good idea. And I suppose busy parents will say better the robot than, than the television or better the robot than nothing. At least the robot can call me on my smartphone if there's a problem. There are advantages to it. Uh, and again, you know, better the old person in a smart home than in a regular home and having accidents and hurting themselves, poisoning themselves or having a fall and nobody notices. Um, mm. But again, the technology is sweeping ahead. We haven't really had any serious debate on the limits of this. And, and as I say, the codes don't say much about vulnerable users. And the people writing the software for the vulnerable users, in my experience, have really not much of a clue about vulnerable users. And they're unhappy to have a psychologist come in and advise them because that's not how they work. So in the United States, this when it comes to elderly people, this is going to happen. Uh, we don't have a national health service. Uh, when you are in advanced age, over 65 in the United States, you do get essentially free health care through Medicaid, but it does it only covers when you're sick. It does not cover home care for the vast majority of cases. Um, there is simply no money to take care of many elderly people in the United States. Um, that's just the reality of the situation. And so anything that can be done, to bring the cost of uh, long-term care, which is the which is how I was was taught to define um, and anything regarding a, a nurse for any anything from help around the house to a nursing home is long-term care um, versus you know like chemotherapy would be short-term care um, that is not covered by any insurance. It's not covered by the government. It's basically covered by um, the pockets of, of uh, those who care about that person. And so anything to bring that cost down, anything at all, will be gobbled up um, immensely. So if you can get a robot to help with some of that and decrease you know, the cost by 20%, 30%, even if the quality then also decreases, is going to explode in the United States. I, not just the United States. Uh, mm. I, the position you've described is not really any different in Britain. There isn't enough money to pay for so, social care. Mm. Uh, and in fact, that makes a problem for the NHS in that people are admitted they could be discharged from hospital, but the hospital can't discharge them because there's nowhere to discharge them to. Or in their, in their opinion, they're not safe at home. So we have the problem of so-called bed blockers, which is a big problem for the NHS. Uh, Japan, Germany, a lot of countries have exactly the same problem. Uh, and robots in elder care it is coming. And again, I, I feel it's like driverless vehicles. We, there's so much we need to sort out uh, in terms of the insurance and legal position. Uh, and, and also the design and programming of this equipment. It needn't actually be a physical robot. It could be a smart home that monitors the, the person inside. Uh, and it, it's so easy to do with today's technology. In fact, you can, you can monitor what goes into a fridge and what comes out by simply reading the barcodes or RFID tags on things to know uh, a person's diet. And it, simply to 
make warnings if it's not right. You can monitor temperature everywhere. You can monitor the temperature of bath water and so on. Monitor the temperature that comes out of taps. And you can put CCTV on people. This is all today's technology. Um, well, <laughs> I, I'm surprised I'm not called in as an ethicist on how to do this because it's, it's really doable and I, I don't think the FDA have laid down any standards for it and now's the time to do it, surely. Now's the time to have standards. Uh, the, the one thing that could work, that could go a long way, that I don't think companies um, will do, and I was, I had this thought back when we were talking about um, uh, cars, though you could apply it in a lot of different situations. If you're a company, and you sell a car, um, you could make the whole thing work uh, and be very ethical about it by simply um, indemnifying the user, except for you know cases of you know intentional you know damage. Basically, you say if there's an accident, we the company will take the the, the liability. We'll handle it. We'll pay for the the, the damage. Um, they're they're never going to do that. But that would be, that would be a, a, a very fast, easy fix um, for someone like a Tesla to do, um, to, to kind of move the whole industry. Yeah. Um, in a way, I think it's a federal responsibility. I, I mean, I can't see the current administration seeing it this way. Yeah. But 30,000 people a year die in the United States in uh, automobile accidents. Uh, I... I I'm not the only person who makes this rough guess. I think that could be brought down to 3,000 people a year. So we're talking about saving 27,000 lives by introducing this technology. Uh, that's, that's a general benefit to every citizen of the United States. So it would be fair to say every citizen of the United States should, through the federal government, uh, indemnify both drivers and manufacturers. I, you know, I'm not saying manufacturers shouldn't be prosecuted if they've done a, a poor job, because that's you know that's that's where we need the lawyers. But uh, the technology should go ahead simply for the lives that said. This is this is basically the theme of my paper: is how can you justify killing all those people simply because you can't build the the insurance and legal machinery to introduce this technology? Does, yeah. does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. <laughs> it makes a lot. Yes, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, so I would think, Blay, that you're, and and tell because you you made the comment a moment ago about, you know, you're surprised that that more more companies haven't brought you in to work on some of this. And now, and I was as as we've been talking, I've been working on the the assumption that that given that. You know, I I don't know anyone but you, and I'm sure there are people, but I don't know them, who are, uh, you know, would call themselves technology ethicists. That um, that you must be very busy because I don't think there are a lot of you. But may, you know, either I, I could be wrong because a maybe you know, like it was many years ago with human factors work. Uh, Although there was a big need for it, the people who were creating the the products didn't didn't know or didn't think they they needed it, um, or or maybe uh, you know there's already plenty of people 
doing this. What what you know? What's your take on how how much uh, technology ethics work is going on with these new technologies and 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 the companies? Uh, is uh, is there going to be is there now or is there going to be a huge demand for for people who can do this work? And uh, and thirdly, how does one go about you know becoming? A technology ethicist and doing the work. No, you've hit me with a load of questions. I don't, yeah, you know, just, uh, just a few easy questions for you. Um, yeah, these these are all things I don't really know. Um, and in spite of actually approaching some large companies, I'm, I'm not particularly in demand as a technology ethicist. And in case you're interested in the bottom line, I should say that ethics work unlike human factors work, right? ethics work is traditionally done for free because any exchange of money would create a conflict of interest. And conflict of interest is something we're bothered about as ethicists. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure that's something that will be discussed with the new president of the United States, the notion of conflict of interest. And, uh, and I'm sure you can see how paying your ethics committee might be seen as not the way to go. So usually I'm offering my services for free but even so there's surprising lack of interest um, and, and a number of companies screaming well we're complying with the law and me, <laughs> and me screaming well the law is hopelessly out of date in this area um, the law's not really being much of a guide and, and we talked through some technologies where you know sorry the law is out of date. I mean, particularly with the driverless cars, and Tesla's a good example. Tesla say quite clearly, you can turn on the autopilot system on the car and it'll do all sorts of wonderful things, but you've got to remain alert and take over because you're driving, basically. You're responsible. You know, our autopilot system is, is just for your amusement. Don't take your hands off the steering wheel. They literally say, don't take your hands off the steering wheel in the owner's manual. Uh, and while that that law remains in place. Uh, driverless cars are being held back. People are being killed by drunk drivers. That, that, that doesn't have to happen if we could just change on this. Uh, so, how much of it is going? How much technology ethics is going on? I, I really have the feeling, and again, you know, I, I feel these non-disclosure agreements weighing down on me. But I've spoken to some large companies in the area, and I, I have. A very unhappy feeling. I, the only way I can characterize it for you guys and for your listeners is it feels like 1881 tombstone. That a lot of the IT industry does feel like the old west, it, it, where it's not that there's no law, but a lot of people feel that you know, like the Earp brothers, they can walk down the street, push the local sheriff out the way, and and deal with it themselves. There's a lot of that going on. It also feels, and it's interesting that UX Brighton conference, there were, there were a lot of women represented there, uh, a lot of women speakers and so on. But the IT profession, to me, still feels male-dominated. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, and that it, it's got that in common with Tombstone 1881. It's, it's a very male-dominated society. And even when women go into it, and, and some very competent women go into it and do very well, let's be honest about this, they they know, even when you speak from those undergraduates, they know they're going into a male-dominated industry and they compensate for it. So 
it doesn't feel to me like the IT industry as a whole, you know, Silicon Valley and these big US companies and the little AI companies in Britain, all of them, they, they still feel a lot like the Wild West to me. Does that capture it? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, I have another question I wanted to get to, um, which is a little bit of a change of subject. You you seem to have reservations. So so the general, I feel like the consensus, no, consensus is the wrong word. There's been a movement towards an acceptance that the future of AI and the future of uh, robotics um, has a place for intimate companionship, uh, be it relationshipy or sexual, either way. Um, with a, with robots and in software, um, you 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 I think you alluded to earlier rejecting this assumption. Is uh, is that correct? Yeah, um, I'm very much in favor of what AI can do. I'm very much in favor of what robots can do. I think there are some wonderful jobs for robots, but when it comes to intimate companionship. People really need to think about what they're giving up, um, and and if we, if we talk about the robot lover, my paper on robot love, which which I mean it grew out of just being asked to speak at an art festival here in Brighton and so on, but but it's now in an MIT collection on robot ethics. Uh, the the a number of things worry me. The, the, one of the main things that worries me, and here's where some philosophical training comes in, is well, you might think you have a clear idea of what love is, but over philosophical time, it's changed out of all recognition. So the earliest work, or one of the earliest written works that we know about is Plato's Symposium. Uh, and Symposium is an all-male drinks party. It's not really an academic gathering. Uh, <laughs> And they, in Plato's Symposium, they famously, they send the flute girls away and discuss philosophy instead, and they discuss what is love. I can't really tell, I can't say to be broadcast what conclusions they come to. I simply say it's a classical book, it's available online, and so on. If I were to publish it, people would burn my house down because we take a very different view now. But it's interesting to see what was considered love in classical Athens. And you might say, well, that has no effect in the modern world. Yes, it does. If you've heard of a platonic relationship, then there's an idea straight out of the symposium, uh, although the way we use platonic now is not precisely the way Plato uses it in the original text. I, I, as always, you, you must read the original text here. Uh, and then the, the Christian church defined love to suit a, a, a very different agenda, um, so the type of love set and then romantic love emerges from really I guess its biggest flowering in the Renaissance uh, and then modern writers write on love in some intriguing and different ways but the, the point I'm making here is it's something that has changed meaning a lot over human history and I think if people talk about being in love with a robot then the meaning of love will change again uh, is that good? Is that bad? 
Well, it's really something you want to think about because the love you might have for a life partner who's you know, another human being, an equal or equal-ish, you know, we can go through details there, it, um, and, and has all manner of moral and legal rights in virtue of being a human, very different from the love you might feel for a robot, which is a wholly owned piece of property. However wonderful <laughs> AI technology, it's a wholly owned piece of property, and may very well, like your iPhone, or sorry, like your smartphone, be sending intimate information about you back to some large US corporation uh, as a condition of it. Um, and, and again, there are ethical questions about, you know, at what point should it tell the FBI? what you're saying in bed. Um, this is this seems a very different sort of relationship. Now, you might want to go in that way, but as a society, we need to ask about this. Can I carry, you want to carry on talking about it? Um, uh, yeah, well, I'll just say um, uh, what you said. I have a couple, in, uh, a couple of um, things that maybe I hadn't thought of came to mind. So one, yes, uh, the, the, uh, it's, it's, it's an own piece of property. So, uh, two, so it could report to the FBI in the United States. We have, um, basically anything that you tell a spouse in confidence is, uh, and maybe this is probably the same way in, um, yeah. right. Is it, you cannot use in, in, in any, in, in any kind of, uh, kind of criminal proceeding that's, and, and usually civil proceedings too, with uh, with some um, rules and exceptions. Um, so, so it would does that apply to uh, robot relationships? Almost certainly not. That's one. Two, uh, I had the the thought of so so you um, so you have a, uh, a an artificial intelligence software partner, and uh, it's like your fourth year of being together, and. They they know the the software knows everything about you and you've developed this amazing bond and then you get an email saying um, if you'd like to continue using the software uh, pay five thousand dollars otherwise we'll we will end what's essentially you know one of your close friends um, uh, so uh, so that you know pay pay for access uh, that could be a little a yes. little dangerous the scope for IT companies to be very unethical is uh, big in this area, isn't it? Uh, which is another worry I have. I, I mean, I have to say, uh, there's small worries. There's a movement uh, in this country to to ban sex robots on the basis that this teaches uh, people, particularly men, uh, to treat their sexual companions as objects and therefore should be resisted. Uh, so that's uh, you know, another question of, are we going in the right direction? But I also have to say there's a lot of enthusiasts for this technology who stopped inviting me to their conferences. <laughs> the, the, their chief argument is there's lots of people who, for one reason or another, can't find sexual companionship, uh, so what's wrong with building them you know, a, a robot to provide this intimate companionship? And I'm afraid I don't see that 
uh, people's social problems are necessarily something that technology should be thrown at. So you're putting in a robot to do a dangerous job, and you know, all credit to, was it Philae landed on a comet on a one-way trip to the sun, but Curiosity that's exploring Mars right now. The robot's doing wonderful jobs for us, and I'm not against robots. But the idea that um, someone can be so rejected by society that they can only find solace with their robot, maybe that's a social problem. Maybe we ought to you know, be nicer to these people. And, and we also ought to consider the possibility what happens when the majority of people don't step outside their front door to deal with the nasty, complicated world of other human beings because they've got a robot companion provided by a large U.S. corporation, as you say, knows all their thoughts and desires and can tell them exactly what they want to hear. But in fact, in AI terms, that is not difficult. And, and, and if you want your companion to be to be nasty to you on occasion, I can write the code to do that too. This is this is, <laughs> this is not a challenge. In, in, in fact, humans, there's some wonderful experiments showing that, that humans attribute way too much um, uh, emotional capacity to things that don't feel it. Well, I'll come, I'll come back to what humans do because that's another ethical worry I have. Um, it, so it, it looks to me like we've got a social problem and we're going to throw a technology at it, which will be very profitable for some. But society as a whole should say, do we really want this? And before I finish on this, uh, when I ask myself what sort of person would want a robot lover, the most obvious answer, I'm sorry to say, is people who want to do things to it that would be illegal or immoral if they were to do them to a human being. You know, that's why people want a robot. And again, how do we feel about that? Um, shall I talk about humans being susceptible to emotional manipulation? Sure. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds a terrible thing to say, but but it's not really. And and the research I'd point you out was done by uh, Schutz and Maller. That's uh, S C H E U T Z and M A. Double L E at, at Tufts in I think 2014 or 2013, where they are, they asked psychology undergraduates to uh, instruct a robot to knock down a tower of bricks, uh, and gave them a, a sheet of instructions that the robot could understand. This is a commercially available robot, a little now robot, nothing special, no no great program. Unfortunately, the, what the psychology students didn't know was that a robot would protest, and it protested by re by reciting can text. Again, it's nothing terribly sophisticated in the AI programming here. The robot said, "Please don't make me knock down that tower. It, it it took me two hours to build it. I really don't want to knock down that tower." And then it pretended to cry, or it was programmed to drop pose. <laughs> That would look like a bit like crying if it were done by a human being. And about 98% of the students didn't make the robot knock down the tower. And when they interviewed them afterwards, the students said, well, you know, the robot was crying. Nobody wants to see a robot crying. And most of them tried to negotiate it with it, um, in spite of having in their hands a piece of paper saying it could only understand these six commands. And I, I think it's a lovely little piece of research. Um, and it's not particularly original because Cynthia Brazil at MIT did a lot of work with Kismet, which again 
demonstrated the vulnerability of humans to a, a simulated emotional display, even when the humans knew that it was just a simulation, that it yeah. was just a mechanical trick. This yeah, is- I, I'm fascinated by this kind of research. You know, one of the things, Blay, we have found when we uh, have given that talk I mentioned before on the future of human technology interaction. So we have a, a point in that talk where we show a video of um, uh, Guthrie, oh, Boston Dynamics, I think, is the company that makes, which is now owned by Google, I believe. Oh, they're trying to And they make sell these, uh, pardon, Guthrie? Oh, the, no, I was just saying that, that may, Boston Dynamics may not be a thing very long. But they, there's this robot in the video that is um, uh, picking up a, a box and moving it to another location. And as part of the video to show how, I assume, to show how um, adaptive the robot can be in, in any obstacles and encounters, there's a, a person that continually like uh, knocks the box out of the robot's hands or pushes the robot away from the box. Um, and what's interesting when we show this video is the instant reaction. And we're talking about like, you know, in, a thousand people in the room, right? And and people do, are like, oh, you know, like they're, they feel bad for the robot, you know? And this is not a robot that, I mean, it is a, it does have kind of legs and arms and a head, but it's not a robot that is showing any kind of emotional reaction. But this ability, this or not even ability, but this this response I think humans have, which is, you know, the whole anthropomorphization. Uh, you know, we we just assume that this other thing that somehow uh, unconsciously reminds us of a human is going to feel bad. Um, when because because I would feel bad if someone kept knocking a box out of my hand or someone pushed me, and so so you know this this robot must feel bad, which I guess is a, you know it's a it's a I'm glad to see that that empathy is so automatic, but I think it does raise some really interesting questions about you know what what is just what are these interactions going to consist of and do we know you know do we have any clue as to the the landscape of of what what is going to be transpiring and I you know I don't think we we really understand what I I think it's really interesting and I don't know that we're going to I mean I I don't know that we're going to be able to to stop it because there's so there's huge amounts of money involved and if there's a lot of money that usually you know it's hard to stop, but I, I'm fascinated with the whole, you know, psychology, social science, behavioral science aspect of of um, relationships with uh, with technology. I think I think we're gonna see pets first. We're gonna see. Um, remember Tamaguchis? Did they ever get Tamaguchis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they and that was you know a hot a hot little thing. That's just a little piece of software. I think we'll see. Um, AI pets first that you know is on your PC and on your smartphone and you know you you, you play with and it barks back and it does different stuff um, and I I think that's where it will start uh, and uh, someone will make a lot of money 
Oh yes, there's immense profits to be made in this, but I would encourage Susan to stay interested and, and, and you know look at that research at Tufts because as an ethicist, I'm immensely worried. This gives a tremendous opportunity to exploit humans. Yeah, yeah. My feeling when um, Matthias Schultz you know, gave a paper and announced the research was the, you know, the 2% who just carry on and make the robot knock down the pile of bricks and don't care are the, you know, the 2% at the extreme end of the psychopaths spectrum. We know there are some humans who honestly don't care about others. But most humans have this tremendous feeling of empathy, and it's so easy to tap into it. I mean, this robot doesn't even look like a human. Yeah. Uh, like, well, it has two arms, two legs, and big eyes, you know. It's, right. Japanese manufacturers are very clever the way they play the the other side of the uncanny valley and so on. Uh, but the, the it's there's no doubt that you know even even Siri or Cordana or what's Alexa could easily be programmed to get under people's skin, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's no law about that. This this. There's nothing to stop manufacturers doing it. There's nothing to. It, it, there's there's not even any guidance. There's not even any right. guidance from to work to. Uh, and again, you know, people people could call me, but they don't. <laughs> I, well, 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 may, maybe they will if <laughs> they listen to our to our podcast. Well, Blay, this has just been fascinating conversation. I appreciate so much your, your coming on and talking to us about this. If if people want to learn more, I mean, it, what do you have like one or two suggestions for, you know, what they should read or where they should go or or what they should do if they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I I can't let this go. I've got to learn more about this. Oh dear. Um, well, I was taken with a, a number of other robotics experts in 2010 to a, a country house on a retreat where we had to come up with a code of conduct for robot builders, a sort of Asimov's three laws for the 21st century. Uh, and that's published, it's published by the EPSRC, which I think stands for the Engineering, Physics and Science Research Council, uh, as guidance for robotics. I, unfortunately, we've covered so many areas that yeah. I, I can't recommend one book. Uh, yeah. I've published a few books on the ethics of AI. Uh, I'll answer email questions, although I have a pretty busy teaching load coming up. Um, I'm preparing a book on the aviation model in medicine, uh, but it, again, medicine has heard a lot about the aviation model. Uh, on this stuff about uh, humanoid robots and robot lovers, yeah, there's a paper in... Uh, Lynn Beakey and Abney uh, edited Robot Ethics, published by the MIT Press uh, a few years ago. There's a, a paper called Do You Want a Robot Lover? Um, well, so, maybe what we'll do, Guthrie, is compile some of these uh, uh, and and just put them... Uh, uh, I usually write a blog post when we, when we publish... Um, a podcast episode so I can put some of these uh, references in in that blog post for people I guess what's intriguing is we really we're talking about contemporary technology I mean driverless cars are not 
long in the future or robot nannies or yeah no nannies. yeah uh, and when whenever we give a talk we always say um you know this isn't some far out this is basically like because when people say what's happening like quote now they're really talking about next year you know yeah. um because what's happening right now is we have driverless cars we have you know these things already exist it's just a matter of deployment yeah, I mean, what's interesting, we're talking about contemporary technologies, stuff, stuff that's around now, and saying, well, there hasn't been much discussion of the ethics. I, I don't know where you'd go to find about the ethics. No one's talking about it, which is, I guess, one of the reasons I'm quite worried. Yeah, that it's, it's already here, and we're not even talking about the ethics of it. Yeah, we, who's talking about when it's right and when it's wrong to mistreat a robot or... Uh, have a robot companion. Do, do you want a robot lover as opposed to a human lover? Or do you want both? I, you know, who's talking about this? And, and yet the technology is there. Blay, thanks so much for joining us. And Oh, uh, oh wait, Blay. What? Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, no, not particularly. No. So, okay. <laughs> we always ask so people people call me and, and ask for ethics work it's traditionally free so it's not much in it for me but, it, but I'm genuinely worried about these issues and I, I, I'm surprised that more people aren't Blaze stay in touch with us sure you know uh, and uh, I will just remind everyone before we uh, sign off that if you uh, like our podcast, uh, please tell others about it and uh, rate it and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. And, uh, you know, um, don't order that, uh, that robot lover yet. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Okay.